If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. caught on and there was then a select committee about how paupers in the workhouse were eating animal bones, green animal bones, that they were meant to be crushing. That was Samantha Shave on a 19th century workhouse scandal. Does one want the life of a former prime minister written by a cabinet colleague who could evoke and explain how they behaved as a politician in a rather vivid way? Or do we want to commission a professional historian who will try to situate the life of this former prime minister in perhaps a fuller historical perspective than a former colleague might do? And that was David Canadine, the new editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. You're listening to the History Extra podcast, from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of February 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. The 1834 Poor Law Amendment Act saw the widespread introduction of union workhouses and transformed the way poor people were treated in the country. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, and Dr Samantha Shave of Bournemouth University, paid a visit to Weaver Hall Museum in Northwich, which was once a workhouse. There they discussed whether life inside the notorious Victorian institution 
was really as bad as authors such as Dickens would have us believe. So, Samantha, we've come to um, Weaver Hall Museum in uh, Northwich, um, the former workhouse. Um, we're standing now in, the, in what was the, the boardroom. Um, just tell me a little bit about what would have happened in, in this room. Okay, um, so in this room, um, you would have had a Board of Guardians meeting every week. And the Board of Guardians composed of people who were voted in uh, to represent each parish of this particular union. So um, I think 61 parishes mm-hmm. in this union, hence the need for a, a large boardroom. Yeah, yeah it is um, a huge room, isn't it? It's, it's very tall. <laughs> and so would people have to have come to, in front of the, the, the board when they wanted relief or when they wanted to, to come into the workhouse? Is that how it yeah, worked? Yeah, um, there were times when um, people's individual circumstances meant that they required an interview to work out yeah. uh, whether they should be admitted to the workhouse or whether they should be given out relief. And out relief is basically a payment uh, to sustain that person outside of the workhouse fabric itself. Mm-hmm. Um, if the person was admitted to the workhouse, um, then they would um, assess them you know, accordingly. So um, they would give up their possessions and uh, you know, put workhouse clothes on and then enter the workhouse okay. and join the other inmates. Um, and what, is, what determined whether you, you were quite, you qualified for, for out relief or whether you were told that you'd need to go into the workhouse? It very much depends on what the board thought of you. Um, so uh, say uh, you were just one individual yeah. who needed assistance, um, then it was quite likely that you'd be told to enter the workhouse. Um, say if you had seasonal employment, but you know employment was coming your way yeah. within like a, a week or two, then you might just be given some money to kind of help you uh, get over that period uh, yeah. without pay. Um, so it really depended on each individual circumstances, and obviously people came here needing medical assistance too, um, or expectant women, so they would probably be admitted to the workhouse and given medicine, medical treatment in the workhouse as well. So, I mean, it must have been quite... So, would they have come in sort of one at a time and then been assessed by the board, or...? Um, th- yeah, th- there's, there's probably be a queue outside of the door. I was thinking they'd be um, quite busy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but these board meetings weren't just to assess individuals. They are actually to think about bigger things happening in the, in the union itself. Um, usually a board meeting would start by looking at how much each parish owed... The mm-hmm. union system, um, which was based on an estimate of how many people per parish or township would come in and need relief. Um, so the, the beginning of meetings is often very financial. And then they would talk about um, appointments, uh, so appointing a new nurse, appointing the master and matron of the workhouse, and dealing with the issues around that employment. So whether um, you know, a master was doing you know, particularly well or particularly badly, yeah. um, and they would look at his books. Um, and also they would think about the policies which the central authorities would pass to them. Because when the new law was set up, um, the central authorities were issuing quite regularly these circulars, so they, they're kind of details about... The, the care people um, expected to receive in a workhouse. Mm. So whether it was you know, the appointment of um, 
reverence to administer religious service to those inside the workhouse, or whether it was about clothing or types of food. So actually, in these board meetings, they were discussing how to implement quite vague policy from the centre. Okay. We're sitting in, the, in what was the, the schoolroom now, um, which, yeah, which children had their lessons daily in here, I assume. Um, so can you just take me through, you know, the kind of coming to the workhouse, you know, what would have happened when you sort of walked through that, that massive front door? What would have happened next for you? Um, there was a receiving ward area. Um, you have your clothing taken away from you and put in storage, or if it was uh, if it was verminous, it would be burnt. Right. Um, and then you'd be given a, a kind of workhouse uh, outfit, um, and then you would probably you probably arrive late in the afternoon, um, and you'd probably end up going you know, sh- being shown to your ward yeah. of the place where you would sleep for the night and then the day started in fairly early um, or very early in, in the summer um, and it had a very strict routine uh, involving work um, eating um, and for children education and what sort of things would they have learnt then in, in this school would it be would it have been sort of reading and writing or would it have been sort of you know more um work-related things? A mixture. Um, reading and writing uh, was a priority, um, particularly in the late 19th century, um, when the whole idea of the three R's came about. Mm-hmm. Um, but work-related education was particularly important, um, and, and particularly important, I think, for, for young girls, actually. Um, it, they would teach them domestic activities um, in, in terms of... Uh, uh, cooking and sewing yeah. um, and that was thought to put them in good stead particularly if they were going into domestic service so yeah. and a variety of uh, activities yeah I mean just on the wall in front of us there's a big a big sign about segregation in, in, in the workhouse mm. um, so families were, were split up then were they into so you had adults and children um, mm-hmm. men and women yeah um, and would they ever, ever have met? You know, once you came in, was that it? Would you see your parents, you know, even if you lived in the same building? Yeah, I mean, there were there's some really uh, sad stories, um, some autobiographies and uh, similar types of documents which just say that, you know, they had glimpses of their family through, mm. through the windows, mm. um, and, you know, through the workhouse um, windows or whether it was mealtimes, the kind of filing in and out of a particular categories of people you might come across your yeah. your partner or your sibling or your uncle or you know uh, extended families yeah you, know, you would see people that you knew from back home in the parish that you were from yeah. um so yeah it was very um the segregation aspect was very harsh and and there are some uh kind of attempts by guardians and workhouse masters those benevolent ones to allow people to be together mm. and allow there to, for them to be like a visiting time. Um, but this was never uh, thought upon very well by the central authorities. I, I mean, it almost sounds a, a little bit like a punishment on, you know, for, yeah. for not being able to care for yourself. Yeah. You know, you, this, is, I was saying, this is like a last resort for people. Um, yeah. And I, I often say to people, it's, it, it may be the last resort, but it's not the final one. Um, for many people, uh, in the sense that there was hope 
in in terms of getting employment outside of the workhouse mm. you know whether it was a friend that managed to secure a position for you and you could leave the workhouse to go to that job or whether it was um, you're in for medical care and you know you you got better which was a, you know, a rare thing yeah um so for particular categories of people as they would say you know uh, the elderly and in infirm it might have been yeah. the last resort was there any um, attempts sort of within the, the workhouse to help people get out? Because, um, I mean, I think the mm. popular thought is, you know, that you go to the workhouse <laughs> and that's it, then you're mm. there till you die. Um, but you were saying earlier that, you know, you, you, people did leave and sort of come back again. And... That's it. And yeah, you can see various attempts to, um, for instance, um, young adults. So they've, just, they've been through the workhouse schooling system. Yeah. Um, but actually... Uh, the matron or the master or the school master or school mistress, whoever it was, might have been able to secure employment for those children, um, <clears throat> might have been able to secure employment for particular people in the workhouse. Um, sometimes, um, particularly when industry was going well, there would be uh, round-robin letters to uh, people asking for, you know, strong men to work on the canals here or mm. in particular parts of the in, um, industry. So actually, um, sometimes when those uh, calls for uh, employees came about, there was, there was a kind of glimmer of hope yeah, there. Yes, it wasn't necessarily a permanent solution for people then. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, there were still apprenticeships too. So mm. if, you know, an opportunity did come up, then... Uh, in terms of arranging an apprenticeship, the, the, the Board of Guardians might be involved in sorting that out. And would life here really, you know, you, you read Oliver Twist and, you know, Dickens and things like that, yeah. would, it, would it have been as kind of as bleak and as hard as, as perhaps, you know, you've read, you know, the gruel and the, mm. you know, the, the food and that sort of thing? Was, was, was the regime really that bad? Um, I'd say yes. I'd say the regime was that bad and possibly worse in some workhouses. Um, in the Andover Union Workhouse, which is in Hampshire, um, there was a very, um, it was a master and a matron essentially um, not working according to the rules of the workhouse system. And they were ciphering off rations, workhouse food for themselves. And uh, that ended up in uh, being the malnutrition of a lot of um, inmates. They didn't even have knives and forks to eat their food because they wouldn't spend any money on, on acquiring them. Um, and they were set to work on bone crushing, which is incredibly physically demanding. Um, and they would use a kind of pestle and mortar-like system to grind down bones into a kind of fertiliser. Yeah. And this would then be sold off, you know, to, and used on farmland. Yeah. But, um, and this, this employment was eventually banned, um, because, partly because of the unhealthy nature of the employment, but... Um, the press caught on and there was then a select committee about how paupers in the workhouse were eating animal bones, green animal bones, that they were meant to be crushing. Because they were so hungry. They were so hungry. And um, so we have these kind of workhouses that were just incredibly, um, just just incredibly badly run, incredibly corrupt, incredibly abusive. Mm. And it was kind of a potluck situation if it can be described as that, where you didn't know whether the workhouse you're going into was going to be one of these badly run workhouses or whether you, you know, whether it be kind of a more stable regime. But anyway, the regime itself 
um, was very harsh. Without all the corruption. <laughs> Without all the corruption yeah. to start with, yeah. yeah. And the Andover Union Workhouse scandal really shook the Poor Law Commission and then it, it basically got rebranded as the, the Poor Law Board after that. Um, so there was a, there was a, a, a reshuffle, essentially, yeah. and a relabeling of the, of the workhouse system. I mean, it wasn't an element of deterrent as well. Did, was, that, was that why things were quite harsh and had to stop people coming, coming here? Yeah, there was the idea um, of the principle of less eligibility. And that was the idea that any condition inside the workhouse would be less, less kind of good as mm-hmm. the situation of an independent labouring class, kind of family or individual outside of the workhouse. Yeah. So you have very monotonous dietaries and uh, just kind of flavourless food, essentially. Um, you have a strict work regime, um, which could be any type of work, essentially, that was permitted um, and potentially a type of employment that would gain the union some money mm-hmm. um, to kind of feed back into the system. Yeah. Um, hence the idea of bone crushing, although that never made any money, basically. It was, mm. was mainly used as a deterrent because people knew that if they go to the workhouse, they had to do something awful yeah. um, in return. And also the, the segregation was part of the deterrent. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and how, how were, you know, after the, the changes to the, to the poor law, um, you know, how, how do people view that? Was, were they, was that supported by people, you know, these changes that were made in 1834? It's, an, it's a really interesting question, and it's one that historians are still debating. Mm. Um, the poor law of 1834 was essentially the idea of a... It kind of originated from a coalition government. Mm-hmm. And a coalition government at the time of um, economic um, downturn... If you think about 1834, you've just had the swing riots um, where the labour and class revolt um, essentially shook the landed gentry. It really shook them up. You know, their, their, their hayricks were on fire. Yeah. Um, their property was being questioned. And so their entitlement was being questioned. So we just, we, the country had just experienced those riots. Uh, you had industrial and rural a decline essentially, um, which meant that there were large um, amounts of uh, people who were underemployed and unemployed. So they were uh, asking for more out relief, it's predominantly the form of relief before 1834. So basically, you have a government that decides, um, although a lord announced it. Uh, without really <laughs> confirming it with the rest of his uh, bench, that they would have uh, an inquiry into poor relief. And that resulted in the, the Royal Commission on Poor Relief in 1832. And, and royal commissions were quite rare. Yeah. Um, they were only used when they thought that expert opinion was worthy of a topic. So they, there was one on factory acts running at the time uh, when... Which led to you know, factory conditions, which led to the factory acts uh, later on. So you know, we have a kind of very hyperactive coalition government yeah. um, thinking about what could be done, what could be done about rising levels of out relief, which was basically very expensive for the upper classes, and a, 
a kind of an unstable society mm. which the swing riots represented it's the essentially the last um or what, you know, one of the major um almost revolutions of england um and so during the royal commission particularly people had um opinions about how uh, poor relief should be run some people said abolish it altogether rely on a system of charity mm. um but we know uh, now uh, as people did then that charity is an uneven mechanism um so a system of state relief continued but one that was very much based on the idea of deterrence yeah, yeah. and restrictive and did it work you know, did these changes actually make a difference? I mean, because did, did that relief continue? Yeah, it, it continued um, to the point where in the late 19th century there was a, you know, a group of people um, uh, in a movement called the Crusade Against Outdoor Relief. You know, they, they wanted outdoor relief to, to finally come to an end. Um, outdoor relief continued, and of, and of course it did in a way because um, lots of types of employment were seasonal. Mm. So you'd only need um, some assistance at particular times of year. Now, a place like this um, that we're in, um, here in Cheshire, you probably had vast numbers of people working during some periods of the year and not others. Um, So it made sense to just, instead of paying for the cost of maintaining someone, uh, their accommodation, their food and everything, just to give them money to tide them over. Yeah. So it was very much on, on an individual basis then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just walking over here, yeah. there's a, they've got there's a, a big model of the workhouse. Yeah. You can really see how huge it actually was because it's actually what's left today that you walk into. Um, I mean, it's, it's still very imposing, but looking at the actual scale of, of, the, of the original um, buildings, it was actually huge, wasn't it? It's a really large institution. Um, we can see um, the original 300 pauper plan here. Um, which is essentially a cross with a large frontage and separate yards. So in the front, at the left, we have the boys' yard. Um, and the right, we have the girls' yard. Behind that, the women's yard. And behind the boys' yard, the men's yard. So here we have complete segregation. Yeah. Um, and their dormitories would have been um, opposite the yards there. So they couldn't see into each other's yards or anything they like that? They couldn't, no. And in the, in the middle, we also have the kind of central uh, hub. Um, If we lift this up here, um, we can see that it was the original master's house, which was in the middle. And that is um, interesting because the Paula Commission recommended particular plans of workhouses. And all of the plans they recommended by their so-called commission um, uh, architects, they all contain this central hub Um, which basically embodies the principle of the panopticon. So the central location from which everything can be seen in the workhouse. It's almost like a prison. That's it, yeah. Yeah. And there were prisons already at this time, um, already have with this a panopticon in the middle. It's Benthamite idea. And also pre-1834 workhouses had this panopticon too. And they had a similar structure. Basically the commission saw... Um, older workhouses that worked 
and I went to visit them. Mm. So called model workhouses. And then they base their plans and ideas for future workhouses on the, the older ones. So this is like a classic workhouse design for yeah. an, an earlier workhouse. Do you, what, yeah. when, the, when was um, Northwich, when was this, this um, workhouse built? So this, this uh, particular union was established in 1837. So that's yeah. a few years after the new poor law um, started to be rolled out. Yeah. Um, and it would have, the workhouse itself would have been finished a couple of years later actual building um, in the meantime they were using parish workhouses um, so whilst the union workhouse was being built they would use uh, whichever parish workhouses were were large the largest or the best and they would also instead of each parish workhouse having everyone in mm-hmm. from that parish they would say um, one workhouse should just have women in one just okay men in so they were already segregating before this workhouse uh, was built before it was finished. That was Samantha Shave. You can read more from Charlotte and Samantha in the February issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's edition, we explore the history and global legacy of Magna Carta as it approaches its 800th anniversary. We discover how Britain became entangled in the Vietnam War and we explore the hidden stories of British soldiers captured by Germany in the First World War. You can pick up our February issue now in all good news agents and digitally. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that we have two upcoming reader events taking place this March. On the 21st and 22nd of that month, we're holding two-day events themed around Magna Carta and Waterloo. At each event, you'll get the chance to hear from several expert speakers and enjoy a buffet lunch. For more details and tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. And as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get discounted entry. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So David Catterdine is one of Britain's most distinguished historians, having held positions at Princeton, Cambridge and London universities. Recently, he added another major string to his bow when he was appointed editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, the national record of close to 60,000 lives who have impacted on Britain's history. I spoke to him earlier this year about his new role, and I began by asking him what he considers to be the dictionary's greatest achievement so far. 
Well, I suppose the main achievement was the publication of the the multi-volume new version of the old Dictionary of National Biography as the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, a major collaborative project involving the British Academy, Oxford University Press and the University of Oxford, which completely redid the original late Victorian version and, of course, also the 20th century supplements to it. So that was of itself an extraordinary achievement of, in some senses, entrepreneurship, of publication and, above all, of scholarship, which, of course, came out in 2004. Since then, I think the major achievements across the intervening decade have been the continued updating of the dictionary uh, year on year with new lives of new people who've recently died. And that, of course, is a continuing aspect of our work. And I suppose also to a greater extent than perhaps was fully appreciated in 2004, the way in which the online version of the dictionary, as distinct from the hard copy version, has become for most people what they understand the ODNB to be, the way they access it. And from our end, that's to say the editorial team of the ODNB, it's become a kind of constant work in progress because, of course, the online version, unlike the hard copy version, is one that can constantly be updated and modified and augmented as new evidence comes to light. So I think it's fair to say that uh, across the intervening 10 years since the original blue volumes appeared, those would be among the greatest achievements. And the consequence of all that, a final element of this, I think, is that because it's now accessible online and for many people through public libraries or institutions, it's accessible free. I think it means that the ODNB is more fully than ever before, more fully than its 19th and 20th century predecessors were, a kind of major part of the national culture of many people in this country and a major part of the intellectual life of many people living around the world. And not all of that could quite have been foreseen in 2004, but it certainly happened in the intervening period and is still happening now. And do you have an idea of how much help this has been to historians, um, professional ones and also amateur researchers? I think it's been of enormous help, this latest version of the ODNB, especially in its electronic form. I think to, as it were, amateur historians, non-professional historians, if I can put it that way, many of whom are particularly interested in family history, I think it's been an enormously valuable research tool of a kind that didn't really exist before. Or if they want to look up famous people who live in their own locality, for example, you can now do all that online because it's searchable. And I think by the same token for professional historians, the amazing amount of material electronically available and therefore cross-searchable means that there is in fact a huge amount of potential to the online version of the ODNB which has not even yet been fully realized in terms of looking at connections, correspondences between different people, a whole variety of networks and relationships which will help us understand various aspects of the history of this country and the history of other parts of the world in a way that we really haven't been able to do before and which I think the ODNB is essential for making possible. So are there actually historians now using the ODMB to research in that way, looking at how different biographies connect to each other? Yes, there are quite a number of research projects now in train which are attempting to use much of the material that the ODNB has created to see what the connections are between different people and to carry forward certain forms of group biography and group research which previously wasn't possible and for which the entries in the ODNB provide raw material which, as I say, is now available because it's cross-searchable in a way that, of course, the hard copy simply wasn't. On a sort of broader point, how do you see the relationship between biography and history in general? 
Well, it's always been an interesting relationship for as long as people have written histories and as long as people have written biographies. And of course, some people of whom I'm one indeed have tried their hand at both in the course of their careers. I think we live in a world now where to a lesser extent than was the case perhaps in the 19th century, we understand the constraints and limitations to the freedom of individuals to make their own lives and to make history, even as biography remains, of course, a hugely popular form of nonfiction writing and non-fiction publishing. Uh, so I think in that sense, we have a greater awareness than perhaps our forebears did of the limitations to the autonomy of individual lives. And I think that one of the ways in which the ODNB is valuable is because it's a route into that way of thinking about biography. But I think it's also the case partly back to the point that it's cross-searchable, that the ODNB is now a major resource, not just for people interested in biography who want to read the entries as biographies, but it's also a major resource for historians concerned with such issues as where are people educated would be one obvious example. What kind of marriage partners do they choose? What's the pool of marriage partners from which they might select? What kind of universities have they gone to? What regiments have they joined up in? What was the impact of the First World War, not just in terms of people dying young, but in terms of young people losing their fathers at an early age. There's a whole variety of issues such as that, which are historical, at least as much as they're biographical, which can now be engaged with, thanks to the ODNB being cross-searchable in a way that simply wasn't true before. So I think where the ODNB contributes, as it were, to the continuing fruitful, if on occasions, adversary relationship between history and biography is that it provides a whole new way in some senses of accessing uh, information, which is both biographically significant, but also historically significant as well. And that's a major innovation and achievement, which the online ODNB has made possible. And is there also a hope that people reading a biography in the ODNB might then look to read further history books to extend the context of that story? I think that's certainly true. One of the things that the ODNB entries do, of course, is to provide an extended bibliography for the entries. That's to say what secondary books have already been written on the subject in question, where the archival material might be, if there is any, where the visual images are, particularly in the National Portrait Gallery, with whom the ODNB has a very close relationship. So for people who just want, as it were, a quick glance at a life, the ODNB is the point where they start and probably the point where they end for people who want to explore in greater detail a life, then the ODNB is the place where they start and which gives a lot of pointers and guidance and bibliographical information which will enable them to proceed further. Now, I believe a new batch of biographies has either just been released or is, or is about to be released. Are there any particular highlights from that that you would like to pick out? Well, we have just released the latest tranche of biographies. We do this every January. And the latest tranche of biographies relate to people who died in 2011. It's a very interesting group of people. One of our slogans might always be, while there's death, there's hope, as it were. We're never going to go out of business because people do keep dying. And we update the entries year on year. And so it's the 2011 lives that have just been put up. We always like there to be a, a certain gap between when people die and when we give, as it were, our version of their lives in the ODNB so that their reputation can settle a bit before we actually commission and then accept 
the entries. And of course, that brings me to one obvious example of the wisdom of that policy, which is, of course, that Jimmy Savile is one of the entries that's just gone up. When Savile died, he was much acclaimed as a popular cultural icon, thanks to Top of the Pops and Jim Will Fix It, um, and as a major figure who had done good works, or at least that was what was thought was the case in terms of philanthropy and so on. Since, of course, his death, a wholly different version of Jimmy Savile has emerged of the rampant and ruthless sexual predator. And one of the things that we have been able to do in the entry that, uh, in fact, my predecessor as editor, Lawrence Goldman, has written very brilliantly, is to do full justice, both, as it were, to Savile's life as he lived it and to what has happened to his reputation posthumously. And the Savile entry is an interesting one in that it's a reminder that getting into the ODNB is about historical significance. It's not necessarily about being a good person. But clearly, anybody interested in understanding the popular culture and other aspects of British life in the second half of the 20th century and the first decade of the 21st is going to have to reckon with Jimmy Savile, and that's why he's in. So that's one of the entries that we have just put up for the 2011 cohort. Could you give us an idea of the process that's used to select the people who will have biographies written of them? Because there's far more people of note who will die each year than I guess you, you could include. Yes, we inevitably have limitations of space. We've put up about 220 new biographies from 2011 this year, this week, in fact. We have a very complicated and rigorous process. We have a set of advisory groups for different categories of achievement and activity and professional endeavor. And we consult with them as to who of those people who die in any given year they think are of sufficient historical significance to merit an entry. And then there is a continued process of selection and revision until we decide who the people are that we're going to put in. So we take that process very seriously. And on the whole, I think we do as good a job as we can, given that we do operate under considerable constraints of space that we can't, as it were, put everybody in who maybe we would like to put in. But we take a lot of trouble to ensure that those that we put in have been very carefully considered. And indeed, that those that we don't put in have been very carefully considered as well. And how do you go about deciding on the historian or the author who will write each entry? Well, again, that's quite a complicated process because we need to be very careful and serious about it. And on the whole, again, the expert panels not only offer advice as to which lives we should commission, but they also quite often offer advice as to who ought to be asked to write the lives that we do decide to commission. And that advice is often very helpful because they're experts and is very often acted upon. Beyond that, there are an interesting set of considerations that we have to bear in mind. Do we want some someone from perhaps the same profession who will understand very much what a person has done, but might perhaps give a slightly claustrophobic account of their life? Do we want someone from outside their own professional world who will take a broader view of what they do? And that's quite an interesting issue that we often have to resolve. And if one takes, for example, politicians, does one want the life of a former prime minister written by a cabinet colleague who could evoke and explain how they behaved as a politician in a rather vivid way, which would be an essential part of the historical record? Or do we want to commission a professional historian who will try to situate the life of this former prime minister in perhaps a fuller historical perspective than a former colleague might do? And weighing up the relative merits and drawbacks of different 
potential categories of authors such as those two I've just described is quite an interesting issue. And one of the things that I have to struggle with, and it'll be a rather interesting struggle to have over the next few months, is who is going to write the life of Margaret Thatcher, which will be one of the big entries coming up in a year or two's time, where that particular issue, does one want an evocation of her style by someone who knew her and worked with her? Or does one want a rather more detached analysis of where she stands in the longer perspective of history, weighing up those two rather different ways of thinking about how her life might be written is going to be an interesting challenge. And I suppose that also brings up the point that some people have have quite controversial lives and careers. Do you always try to find um, a biographer who has quite a neutral view to that person or would you like somebody who's quite sympathetic to them? I think on the whole we try to do both. W.G. Runciman, an Oxford University Press author, once said that he thought the way one ought to look at history in general and historical figures in particular is with a combination of sympathy and detachment. And I think that's what we try to do in terms of the people we commission to write the entries that we wish to publish. That's to say they need to take seriously the person they're writing about. That's the sympathy bit, to recognise that this is, as it were, a life being written for the public record and that the person deserves, as it were, to be treated in a serious and responsible way, even if like Savile, some of the things they did were not, to put it mildly, admirable. On the other hand, we would also hope that there would be some degree of detachment in terms of reaching some kind of considered verdict on the significance of their career, the controversies perhaps that their career involved, and and some general summation of what their historical significance is. That's not always easy to do. And of course, some of the entries, again, because of constraints of space, aren't all that long. But those are, I think, ideally what we would like entries to do. And I think, on the whole, it's what our entries do do. It gets more complex in the case of someone like Thatcher, where I think the combination of sympathy and detachment may be quite hard to achieve, but I shall hope to select an author who will indeed do that. Historical understanding is constantly changing about all manner of people from the past. So how far do you incorporate new research into the many thousands of biographies that already exist? Uh, We do try to do that. That's one of the great beneficial consequences of the IT revolution. The fact that the ODNB is available online, it means that it's constantly a work in progress, not just in the sense that we're commissioning new lives of the recently deceased, but that lives of earlier figures from earlier times can be modified, updated, uh, perhaps even up to a point rewritten in the light of new material and research that becomes available. And we have a considerable program of constantly updating where it's called upon, where the recent developments in scholarship mean that that's what we ought to do. And we are very committed to that. So as I say, one of the benefits of the IT revolution is that in more senses than one, the ODNB is constantly a work in progress, both in terms of lives that we've already commissioned and published, and also in terms of the new lives that constantly we need to commission uh, as well. What do you see as the biggest challenges and maybe opportunities for the ODMB in the years to come? Well, I think the the big opportunity, in a sense, is to continue doing what we've been doing. I think Lawrence Goldman, my predecessor, who was editor from 2004 until September last year, bedded down very well the way in which the ODNB now operates, beginning to realise in a way that hadn't perhaps been anticipated or appreciated before that of the IT revolution. I think that the way the dictionary now works, 
in terms of being primarily an online publication is something really that Lawrence achieved very well. And that makes possible resolving this whole variety of issues about commissioning new lives, both going forward and going backwards and modifying lives. And I think in some senses, the major part of my agenda as the new editor is to continue and consolidate what Lawrence was able to establish. I think beyond that, we are interested in developing and enhancing a set of articles about connections, about associational lives, about seeing ways in which lives that are apparently separate actually overlapped and connected because of uh, things that people had in common. And we're going to develop more work in regard to that. And I think that's going to be a hugely interesting and important project, which will again extend way back to early modern times, if not before that. That's one area we're much interested in. I think we are much interested in how far we can promote research into the material that is now cross-searchable in ways that I've already talked about, where I think the full historical potential of what there is in the ODNB online has not yet been completely realized. And we're interested in thinking about how we might further work to promote that. And I think we are also interested very much in, as it were, the global possibilities of the ODNB. It is, of course, although a dictionary of national biography, many of the people in it spent much of their lives overseas, and many people in it came from overseas to Britain. And so it's actually of itself a kind of dictionary of a version of global biography. But beyond that, we are interested in closer collaboration with equivalent dictionaries, which exist, say, for Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, how far we can generate metadata from all of those dictionaries to produce authentically global lives in an even more fully comprehensive way than the ODNB itself does. And I think we're also interested in seeing if we could help develop dictionaries of national biography in some countries that don't yet have them. So that's quite a busy agenda. And I think it all looks hugely encouraging and hugely exciting. Just one last question, David, just for people listening out there who maybe haven't used the ODNB before, what are the various ways that people can access it nowadays? Well, the main way to access it is through your local public library. If you have a membership card for your local public library, then you can show up there and that will enable you to access it online. And that's why it is, in fact, available to so many people, because for many people, indeed for many of the people who access the dictionary, that's how they do it. And for most people, that's the way to go. That was Sir David Canadine. You can access the dictionary at OxfordDNB.com. And for another slice of British history, don't forget to download our new History of Britain special episode, available free from our website. You'll find it at historyextra.com forward slash Britain podcast. And you'll need to be logged into the site to access it, but don't worry if you've not already registered, as it's free to do and very simple. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Do join us next time when we'll be talking about some of the key inventions that shape modern society and finding out what used to happen in London after dark. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com, and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>